Good evening to you. May I just tell you that Cindy and I are excited to get to come to Delrada. We've been here before. I don't think, I don't remember that I preached here before, but we've visited before, and it's just a real delight. I'm not going to talk about all the people, the different ones that we know and have known through the years because it would take too long, but uh, just know that, that we are very honored to come and be a part of this series. M my subject tonight has to do with the leadership in the church. It's something that I'm very passionate about. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I got this subject. I do not know anybody who pays attention who would deny that our country is going in a new direction. The impact that that is having on the church I think is significant, and we know that. It is for that reason that, that talking about the elders of the church and how the eldership is constructed and these kinds of rudimentary things are so very important. So I, I'm spending a great deal of my time uh, going about talking about these kinds of things, and I'm very happy to be able to talk about them tonight. What is it that the church owes her elders? And, and what do the elders owe the church? I'm getting this question sometimes now, and it, it goes like this. Why do we place membership in a congregation? I mean, after all, you don't find the term in the Bible. You don't actually find that. And so is it a scriptural practice? The answer is it is a very scriptural practice. It's true that we don't find the term, and it's okay with me if we don't use that term. Probably we could come up with a better one. But the practice is right. And so 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the church of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. And we're going to talk about that in a few minutes in other ways, but I want you to get this. The people, the, the elders who serve in a congregation are over the ones who are among them. But just let that soak in. Who are those people? And I would, I would suggest that there's a difference between a, a visitor and a member. And so it would be very possible. Uh, Holly is back there, and Holly was reared in the West Huntsville Church. And suppose we have people come over from West Huntsville and, and visit your assembly here. Would your elders here be responsible for the souls of those people? Bear in mind, Hebrews 13 and 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. And so would your elders be over them? The answer would be no. They're members at West Huntsville, and West Huntsville has her own elders, and those elders are responsible for these visitors' souls. They just happen to be visiting with you. So how many times would a person have to visit before the elders would be responsible for their souls? Five, six, seven times? How many times? And the answer is, well, of course, that doesn't make any sense. A person, I suppose, could be a perpetual visitor. There has to be some vehicle, some way by which a person would say, I want to be under the elders. And we use the term place membership. That's okay with me if we don't use that. I'm not sure it's the best one anyway. But to say, I want to be under the leadership of these elders. And that is scriptural. Now, follow me on this. Good. It's possible for, for there to be four possibilities about the organization of the church. And when I say that, I'm referencing, well, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. And he says that in the church there were saints and deacons and bishops or elders. And so this is scripturally organized. Elders have the and deacons, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you have the qualifications. And it's, it's just rather specific. A man can be a, a devout, faithful Christian and not be qualified to be an elder. Right? 
These are, these are specific qualities that a man must have in order to serve as, as an elder. And so here's a church who has elders and deacons, and they are scripturally organized. It's possible then to be scripturally unorganized. So in Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, the Bible says they ordained elders in every church. Now just bear in mind that it was the church already before they had elders. So it's the church, but suppose a congregation starts and they don't have men who are qualified. I wouldn't want them to rush that. I think that'd be a terrible mistake. They need to take the time to make sure they do this right. It's mighty hard to back out of it once you get it wrong. And so they're without elders, so they are scripturally unorganized. It's possible to be unscripturally unorganized. What would that be? Well, we don't have elders in our congregation we got men, I suppose, who are qualified, but that's not the point. We just don't like the idea. We, we prefer to have a different thing. Maybe the, the preacher is the one who is the leader of the church, and we like that, and so we're just not going to go there with the elder thing. That would be unscripturally unorganized. And, of course, the fourth, fourth one is obvious, unscripturally organized. I was uh, in California a few years ago <clears throat> preaching in, in this encampment, and I went to a class that was about this subject, and, and in this, this gentleman had written a book, and it was about what do you do in congregations that don't have any qualified men to be elders? And, and I know that's a difficult thing, but he said, I just had this idea that instead of elders, what we could do is have a leadership committee, and they would, they would govern the church. Well, now hold on a minute. And I... He, he went on, I raised my hand and he called on me and I said, so what are the qualifications to be on this leadership team? And, and he said, well, I don't know, maybe Acts chapter 6, you know, where they had what appears to be deacons that took care of those, those widow women. Maybe those qualities we could say that that, that would be. Well, the problem is that that's, that's to be unscripturally organized. Catholicism is probably the queen of all of this. And, and so you can't turn to the New Testament and find you couldn't read the New Testament and, and know anything about Catholicism, really, because the hierarchical structure is so dramatic. And that would be to, to be organized in a way that's outside of Scripture. So, so let's begin. What is it that the elders owe the church? Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 says, says this. Take heed to yourselves... Now remember verse 17 that Paul was in Miletus, he called for the elders. And in that, down in verse 28, here's what his exhortation was. <clears throat> Take heed to yourselves and unto all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now let me quickly give you a couple of Greek words. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Greek scholar. This, this will just help, I think, to understand what elders are. Okay, so presbyteros, um, in the context in which we're discussing it, means one who is over the assemblies. Ecclesia, the Greek word for church. It's a fascinating study, and it means people who assemble. That's, that's the meaning of it in its generic sense. And so the, an elder, presbyteros, can mean just an old man, or in the, again, in this context, it would mean someone who is presiding over the assemblies. And then episkopos. Presbyteros is typically translated elder. Episkopos is translated overseer or bishop. And so back to our text, Acts 20 and verse 28, take heed to yourselves 
and into all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. That's what they are. They're over, that's episcopos or bishop. It's really a shame that, that somewhere along the line in Catholicism they decided that bishop should be a different thing from an elder or, or an overseer. Bishop would be over a number of different churches and, and then an elder would be over one church. Well, that's not, that's not scriptural, see, because, because bishop or overseer is the same person, and it's, it coincides with just an elder. So when you hear elder, bishop, overseer, it's all the same thing. It's all the same thing that we're talking about tonight. The first thing he says was, I want you to take heed to yourselves. It's very interesting. The order in which this is found, I think it's very interesting. Take heed to yourself. He's got to be the right man for the job. Now listen, a man can be a faithful Christian and go to heaven having never become an elder. But a man cannot, cannot be an elder and not be a faithful Christian and go to heaven. First thing he said was, I want you to pay attention to yourself. The older I get, the more impressed I am with every single qualification in 1 Timothy chapter 3 for the elders. I'm telling you, everyone is important. If you compromise, and I understand it doesn't involve a perfect man. There are no perfect men. It was written for men. But if you compromise on any of these qualifications when selecting your elders, it's going to bite you. It'll come back and bite you. It might not be this year. It may be a couple of years from now, but you're going to see the consequence of that. Take heed to yourselves. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that a man who would be an elder is, is not to, to be an elder, you know, for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. That is, filthy lucre, King James, that would mean for some sort of money, some sort of ill-gotten gain. And, and anyway, his motive, is, his motive is wrong. What's the motive behind a man wanting to be an elder? I mean, it's important. What's in his heart? Why does he want to be a shepherd? And, and that's not complicated. You know what the, the right answer for that would be. But furthermore, uh, Peter would go on to say, now, I, I don't want you to do this to be a lord over God's heritage, but be an example to the flock. I said, what about his heart? Being a lord over God's heritage would mean that I, I really I like the power, and I think that it's, it's just great to sort of have people in subjugation to me. Stop that. You know what? He's going to hurt the church. Not with that. Don't, don't, don't bring that attitude. He's got to be the right kind of man. And you think about 1 Timothy chapter 3 and the, the qualifications of elders there. Just pull a few of them out. For example, um, he's got to be blameless. That doesn't mean perfect. 1 John 1, 7 and 8 says that if a man says he doesn't have any sin, he's a liar. We, we sin in the very denial of sinning. But he's blameless. The Greek word means cannot be laid hold of. I know, it doesn't make any sense on its face, but it's pretty impressive. What it means is that he can't have outstanding sin in his life in which he is involved. Any continuing sin that is a pet sin, he's holding on to that. Or, or I, I would probably extend it to say that, that there can't be a sin that's been in his life so long that it's rather defined to him. And the reason that this word is used is because if he as an elder then goes to a house of a member who's living in some sin to try to restore them back. Maybe it's the sin of adultery or drunkenness or whatever it happens to be. And the person says, I don't know why you're coming to talk to me. You had a 20-year affair with that other woman, and I knew about that. Oh, there you are. Is there something that can be laid hold on? Now, he's not a perfect man, and every man sins, but is he distinguished by some sin in his life? 
Is he, is he still involved in some, some sin that, that is just part of him? And if so, what's going to happen is that will surface. And people will lay hold on that and it will hurt the influence of the eldership. Is he apt to teach? Apt, you know what that means, of course. It means that that's his practice. He is a person who teaches. Is he apt to teach? Does he rule well his own house? That one's interesting to me. And I know a lot of questions always come up about that one, but, but I want you to get the heart of it. It's, it's not complicated, but it's terribly important. That is to say that you look at his family. If you want to know if a man would make a great elder, the question is, I mean, when you get down to the bottom of it, the question is, does he have the stuff to help people go to heaven? And one of the ways you can determine that is by looking at his family. Look at his kids. I mean, did he? You say, well, I don't think so. He may be a faithful Christian. That's not the question. He may be a faithful Christian headed to heaven. That's not the question. The question is, did he have the stuff to raise his kids to be faithful Christians? Because that's what we need. That's what we need in our eldership. We need men who, well, get to, get to have the first reads. To, Rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Get it now. For if a man knows not how to rule well his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? How is he going to be able to do this if he hasn't got the stuff? And you know he's got the stuff by what kind of family he has raised. What do, what do the elders owe the church? Be the right kind of man for the job. And then to lead the church. So back to the verse. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Take heed to yourselves. And then he says, and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers. Who is it in the church who makes sure that our Bible classes are really Bible classes? Do you, know, you understand? I know it seems so very simple, but a Bible class is, I mean, I love a Bible class where you have lots of discussion, and you, but I'm going to tell you something. It's not a right thing. For us to come in, and, and that's what it is. It's just a discussion. Any, any and all opinion, any and all the time, it's not really a Bible class. We, we need to, to have teachers that understand the Scriptures well enough that they can come to conclusions. I don't mean that there aren't any difficult passages. Of course I don't mean that. But what I'm saying is that who is it responsible to make sure that our Bible classes really are Bible classes? It's really about learning the Word of God. And the answer is the shepherds. The answer is the, the well, Episcopos. It is, it is the elders. Who is it responsible to make sure that our worship is scriptural? Who is it that would look across the church and help families that are in trouble? And maybe sometimes you got a family that's sliding down a slippery slope of immorality in some way. Maybe it's a marriage that's in trouble. Who is it that, that goes to the door and knocks and sits down at the kitchen table and says, look, we've got to talk about this. We really want to help you. It's the shepherds. It's... It's the elders. Who is it that would lead the discipline in the church when it was necessary? There are two reasons in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're commanded to, to practice church discipline. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but I'll say a couple of things. We, we have not restored New Testament Christianity fully if we're unwilling to practice this. It is not a hateful thing to do, done right. Done rightly, it's a very loving thing to do, and it'll unite the church in a great way. You don't withdraw from a person because he sins. If you did, we'd all have to be withdrawn from. 
You withdraw from a person because he continues in sin and won't repent. And there's nothing that you can do to stop it. He just won't repent. That impenitence is what you what forces you to withdraw. And remember that a person is never... The withdrawal does not make a person lost. It doesn't even make him more lost. He's withdrawn from because he's already lost. And you're trying to bring him back. But there are two reasons in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about the withdrawal of fellowship. And one is to restore this person to save his soul from hell. But the other one is to keep the church pure, as Paul would phrase it there by inspiration. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Yeah, I don't know. You, you ever been around a church where open sin is not confronted and checked? Paul was right about that. He was, he was right about that. Who leads that? It would be the ones who watch for our souls as they that must give an account, Hebrews 13, 17. It would be those people who are the overseers. And that now you get you get a hold of that one and, and you realize that you just can't have anybody to be an elder in the church. That's how come we have these qualifications. And it's not just a Christian man, it's a unique man. What does the eldership owe the church? To defend the church from threats. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says that an elder is to hold fast the faithful word as he's been taught that he may with sound doctrine be able to convince and convict the gainsayers. Gainsayer means somebody who would go against the truth. Incidentally, parenthetically, it's interesting to me that you have this and so many other passages that demonstrate that not only can we know the truth about the church and about salvation, about worship, about getting it right, to please God. Not, not only can we know it, but it's obligatory. He requires some things of us. And, and the elders here are described as those who hold fast to that. And, and they may be able to convict and convince the gainsayers. If, if you're concerned in a church about the possibility of somebody coming in, I don't mean with a slip of the tongue. People have slips of the tongue, you know, and they say things sometimes in the pulpit that doesn't sound quite right, but that's not, they didn't mean, I mean, it was not an agenda. I'm talking about somebody with an agenda that comes to the pulpit in a congregation such as this one, and he, and he just, it's just false. What he's teaching is contrary to the scriptures. Maybe it's politically correct in some way, and it's sort of trendy to say this or that, but I don't know, but whose responsibility is it to make sure that that doesn't go, that people know better? In a congregation, the answer is it would be the elders. See, because they're overseers of the flock and their job is to defend the church so that it continues to be pleasing to God. I think, I think if somebody, I mean, I'm a visitor tonight and I'm, I'm getting to preach and I'm just so glad to get to come. But, but you know, suppose, suppose a preacher like me stood in the pulpit on one of these Wednesday nights and just got off on something that was just plain old false doctrine, just false what ought to happen in the room is that the elders glance at one another and then they make this gesture. Got it? And if you're listening online to the recording, it would be pointing at each other and you want to address this or you want me to. Now, I don't mean that they would do something just radical and crazy. I, of course, they're not. But, but to have one of them go to the pulpit, we appreciate Brother Jones, Brother Smith, Brother Brown coming tonight. But I just need to clear something up. This, this was not accurate with the scripture. And I need to clear this. We want to clear this up before we dismiss this room. Why would they do that? And the answer is because that's their job. 
It's because that's their responsibility to oversee the flock. And part of that, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, is to defend the church. Does it matter what we believe? Yeah, it's existential. It is, it is, we, we do not have the right to, to exist if what we hold to isn't the New Testament. Take heed to yourselves and unto all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Ready? For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Even among your own selves, he says, some are going to arise speaking perverse things and drawing disciples after them. <sighs> Listen to this old preacher now. It's a new day. I believe for a number of years that, that in America how we're going to lose our religious freedoms is on the altar of homosexual rights. I got a, an issue of Christian Chronicle a few days ago. I get it online. I don't always read, read it. I read it read sometimes. I, but anyway, the lead article is uh, on the subject of homosexual marriage in the Church of Christ. And now that, now that this is starting to grow, and what do you think about it? And the, and the lead picture was a woman who, who says she's a member of the Church of Christ, but she's married to a woman. And then they had a, a series, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, ten different ones who gave comment that we're going to have a dialogue, and I'm not sure how that all turned out. And you had some in there who said, but homosexuality, the practice is a sin, and this, this homosexual marriage, that's a sin. You know, the Bible is really explicit about that. It really doesn't matter what we think about it. That's what, I mean, that's what it says. Leviticus chapter 18 or Romans chapter 1 or, I don't know, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. I mean, it just, it just says it. But then you had others in there who would say, one in particular just struck me, and he is, uh, I don't know, he's in a church of Christ somewhere, and, and said, I used to think it was a sin, but I'm not really there now. I'm, I'm really on a journey about this right now. I only raise that to say this. God, God put in a safety system for the church. This isn't about not loving people. We love everybody, don't we? It's not about condemning somebody because they have a temptation or temptation's different from mine. That's not it either. It, what it's about is that we have, to, we have to confess that what God calls a sin, we agree with that. Whatever he calls a sin, we've got to, called a sin. And it doesn't make any difference, really, uh, what my opinion is. And this, this jazz about I'm on a journey. Well, I mean, excuse me, but I mean, the, the, you got to, the scripture is there for a reason. And we're, gonna, we're either are going to uphold it or not, but the judgment day is going to come before you know it. You're going to die one day and leave this old world. And I declare to you what I want. And I'm, I, I'm not perfect. Of course I'm not. But I want to be true to the scripture. And what God did was to build a safeguard in the church to say the elders are the overseers of the flock. And part of what they do is to defend the flock. I, I would say that if you're ever concerned about the fact that across our brotherhood you have some pulpits that are very unsound, well, I suppose that's true. But if you get the eldership right, you're not going to have that problem anymore. You won't have that problem because their responsibility is to make sure that when they delegate that pulpit to somebody, that he's going to teach the truth. And if he doesn't, he's just not going to stay there. He, you know, you, you, just, you just love him, but you have a going away party because you can't have that there, right? 
And then it's their job to reproduce themselves, to groom new elders. I would like to spend more time than I have on this. And, and if you want to talk about it sometime, I'll be happy to discuss it. But uh, we, we, we don't need to have a circumstance where in our congregations, we look over the church one day and somebody up and dies. You know, we lose an elder. We lose a couple of elders. And suddenly we're in a fix. We're in a pickle. we got two elders and one of them is not in good health. And we've got a, a sizable congregation and we could lose the eldership like that. And then what happens to the church? It's not very responsible of us. It's no good to choose elders in an emergency because you're apt to make a mistake. What if, what if in our congregations we have a grooming program? You kind of know which men are probably going to be the next elders in the congregation. What if, what if we set up a grooming program? Let's start it. I mean, on mama's knee, those little boys are being taught about the Bible. And I would say that's the beginning of a grooming program for your shepherds one year. Every, every generation of boys, teenage boys coming up, ought to go through a class in a congregation where they learn how to be real men according to the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not all of them are going to become elders. I got that. I mean, that wouldn't even be good, but... I'm going to tell you something, if we raised up a generation of boys and they were largely qualified to be elders, wouldn't that be great for the church? We, ought to, we shouldn't let a generation of teenage boys go by without taking, get the wisest man in the congregation. Uh, maybe if he's an elder, maybe if he's not, but, but have him teach this class. Go down through the qualifications with those teenage boys and say, look, this is what a real man looks like. It's not what the world says, but it's what the scripture says. And these are the men with these qualifications who are the examples to the flock. And then when you, your men get to be 20s and 30s, you, you, you white-headed fellows ought to go up, put your arm around them and say, really appreciate you and, and your family. And I want to encourage you to rear your children the best you can in the Lord. I want you to, to study your Bible. You're going to be glad you did because one of these days before long, we, I think we're going to need you to be one of our elders. I know it's several years out, but I want to challenge you to be preparing yourself so if the church needs you, you will be ready. And then when they get where they're close, they're not quite right, but they're close to being in a situation where they could become elders. What we did at West Huntsville was to create an elder grooming program. It lasted two years. And, and uh, the, the current elders every week would meet with those prospective elders and train them. And it meant that we, that we discussed lots and lots of doctrinal things. Every doctrinal issue we could think of, we talked about it. We, we did elder case studies, which is difficult problems elderships have actually faced so that these, these men could start thinking critically and, and working through problems before they had to really do it. They can fly in this simulator, right? They could fly. It doesn't, it's not really dangerous. We have this conversation. And we did other things with them, too, to get them ready. And so, so that when you ordain them, appoint them as elders, that you don't have surprises that could hurt the church. All right, let's shift gears. What the church owes her elders. The first one is to follow their lead. Now back to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the... I want you to just be impressed with the lack of ambiguity in these words. I didn't design the church. I, I tell you what, the, the, the hand of God is just amazing. He is infinitely resourceful and creative. You see that in the human DNA. You see that in... I don't know, the human body, our respiratory system, our reproductive system, our circulatory system. You see it in the starry sky and great design. We can predict eclipses a century in advance. 
because there is design to the degree that Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 says that people who live around all of this design in the, the universe and they deny the existence of God are, and I don't know how you'd say this clearer, without excuse. There's just too much evidence and, and we're just immersed in it. They're without excuse. I would argue that the same is true about the design of the church. You can't imagine the bride of Christ would be designed in a way that was haphazard in this world of great design of God. Oh, of course it's designed with great deliberate intent and and the eldership is part of that. And what do we owe them? Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. I think that we understand the word obey. I mean, you see it all through Scripture. Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2 about Pharaoh. And he said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I got, I got that. I, I know what that means. Matthew 8 and 27, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Or Acts 5 and 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. Or Ephesians 6, 1, and children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I, got, I understand what that means. Colossians 3, 22, servants, be, uh, obey your masters in the flesh. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7, to you who are troubled, rest with us, for the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. This is the judgment day, taking vengeance on them. Watch it who know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5 and verse 9 says that Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. I got that. Elders do not have legislative authority. They cannot change the fact that baptism is for the remission of sins. They cannot change the, the fact that the church is the sphere of the saved, Colossians 1.13. They can't change the fact that the Lord's Supper is unleavened bread and fruit of the vine and that it's eaten on the first day of the week. The elders can't change that. But there are, there's a world of, of matters of judgment, spiritual discernment. And this passage not only says it'd be good for you to talk to the elders and get their opinion about this, what this says is obey them and submit yourselves. It's stronger than that. Now, I know that 1 Peter chapter 5 says that elders should be examples to the flock. And of course, that's true. And a man who doesn't have the right heart is going to get that wrong. Elders, elders need to be examples to the flock. But they don't just have authority in reference to their influence. They have authority in reference to the fact that the Bible says, obey them and submit yourselves because they watch for your souls. As they that must give an account. That's really strong language. What are you doing here on Wednesday night anyway? How come you people are here? Well, I know you might say, well, because, well, I mean, uh, that's what we do. And, and uh, there are going to be Christians here, and I want to be with the Christians. I like to hear preaching, and I want to come. And that's all true. But I would suggest to you that the elders have declared that Wednesday night is when the church is going to meet in the middle of the week. You don't go to the New Testament and see it bound like you did the first day of the week, but, but it's the elders. The elders have, have set aside this time for the church to meet for midweek Bible study. Why did they do that? The answer is because... Because they know that it's, it's strengthening to us. It's because we need it. It's a great example of the point. I'm not, I'm not going to choose to miss Wednesday night assembly. I, I'm not. Because my elders have set this time aside and my Bible says that in matters such as these, I'm to obey them and submit myself to them because they watch for my soul. 
you suppose, you suppose the elders in their judgment might give some instruction about our entertainment choices? Could they do that? You suppose they could, they could make some decisions about what would be scripturally strong and spiritually healthy for us in reference to, I don't know, let your mind wander. Our dress, the kind of movies that we watch, would they have that authority? The answer is, of course they do. And they're going to strive to use good judgment. But the point is that this is an office where there's some authority attached. I would suggest to you that one elder doesn't have any authority. The eldership has authority. Every elder serves under the other elders. What is it that the church owes her elders? The first, the first thing is to submit themselves to the eldership, to obey the eldership. The second thing is to have a good attitude toward them. So back to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves because they watch for your souls as they that must give an account. It's nearly the word watch there. One of the definitions in the Greek for that, that word is awake at night. Isn't that interesting? When was the last time you went to one of your elders and said, I just want you to know, I really appreciate the kind of uh, time and effort that you guys put in on leading this congregation. We're thankful for you. We need you. How many times lately? You should say that. Because they watch for your souls. It's they that must give an account. Now look at the next line. That they may do it with joy and not with grief because that's unprofitable for you. Wow, that's powerful. So in reference to your soul right now and your spiritual walk and how you're living as a Christian, are you making it easy on the elders or hard on the elders? I'm talking to the Wednesday night crowd. I would kind of like to think, and I expect it's true, that we have very strong Christians in this room. By and large, perhaps the strongest in the church. I don't know that. That's just, but, but I would say that's somewhat characteristic of the people who come on Wednesday nights. And I'm just thankful for you. And thank you for making me feel so comfortable in this pulpit. Now, I got to have the right attitude toward them. Undermining the elders with gossip is inconsistent with what this passage, Hebrews 13, 17, says. Don't, don't, you make, let me make it where they can serve with joy and not with grief. Now, I served as an elder for about 10 years, and uh, I, I, uh, that, we were in a circumstance at West Huntsville where we came down to two sizable congregation, but we didn't mean to come down to two, but that's what happened. And for a number of reasons, we, we didn't have men of that age who we would select. And so they asked me if I would do it. And I said, I, I, I will be happy to do it if you want me to, so long as we understand that as soon as we have men who are qualified, that I'll just resign and go back to being the preacher, just the preacher. And that's what happened. And I'm rather delighted, delighted about that. When you undermine their work with gossip, when you have childish criticisms, when they make decisions, I want to caution you about something. I, I've seen this from the inside. It's a funny thing about making decisions, hard decisions in the eldership, because it's often the case that what you're dealing with has to do with families. And it's often the case that that some of the factors that, that made the decision are things you cannot talk about. Now just let your mind wander over that. 
If it was your family and the elders were laboring over a decision relative to your family, you wouldn't want them to talk about this around. That is to say that people may really criticize the decisions, any decision I suppose the eldership might make without really knowing the whole picture because the elders aren't at liberty to talk about the whole thing. Isn't that interesting? I, I want our boys to grow up and aspire to be elders in the church. What are we doing about that? I mean, if you've got, if you got kids at home, you've got grandkids, what are you doing right now about that? Do you, you think that boys growing up, your boys growing up, would think that it would just be an awesome thing to serve in the church as an elder? Well, I think that largely depends on how we present it to them. If I was an elder, it would break my heart to think about families in the congregation who are raising their boys. And the last thing that he'd want to be is one of them. Same way with gospel preaching, right? They watch for your souls as they that must give an account. And, and you live in such a way, he says, that they may do that with joy and not with grief because that would be unprofitable for you. Don't you think that's interesting? I suppose it's unprofitable for them too. It's not very much fun for them. But that's what, what he says is because that's unprofitable for you. That's not going to do you any good. I, I don't want our elders to serve with unnecessary grief. One more. What do you owe the elders? You ought to seek their counsel in difficult times. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have this discussion about taking your brother to court. And, and so you have a, a squabble, squabble between two Christians and, and I don't know what it might be about. Maybe it's about a property line and their, their properties adjoin and it was two feet over. That's, this is where you should have built your fence and you built your fence over on my property over there. Maybe it's something like that. And he says, don't, don't, be, don't be going to court over that. That makes sense, of course, because, because why should we? Why should, we're about trying to convert the, the world to Christ and the very idea that we would take this dirty laundry before the world to a court of law to try to, he said, look, don't, don't you have a wise man among, any wise men among you that you could consult about this? Just sit down with them and sit, let them decide between you. Well, that makes a lot of good sense to me. And that's what the scripture says. You say, you're looking at a new job and it's a mighty big decision. It's going to be a, it's going to be a raise. There's a lot of ways it's going to be good for my advancement in my career, and I'm, I'm interested in this, but it also means moving to this particular place, and I just don't know. I want to be concerned about the spiritual things, because spiritual things are most important. Than, they're, they're more important than anything else, and so wouldn't it be wise just to go and sit down with the elders and say, I just need a little time to talk to you about this decision. Would you pray with me about this, and can you give me any counsel? Or what if it's about some marriage problem? They didn't see it coming, and now it's here, and it, it's significant, and it's very painful, and wouldn't it be great to be able to sit down with your, your elders? Maybe some serious diagnosis that you get and you don't know the future. Where are you going? What about some parenting issue and I'm having such a hard time with my teenagers? Could you give me some advice? If you look down those qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, I'm telling you, these are the guys you want to talk to. If, they, if, they're, if, they're, if, they're, if that's who they are, 
And I can, I can tell you, these are the men that I want to talk to. I had a question come to Q&A recently at West Huntsville about what if the government says that we've got to give up our guns? Are we going to give up our guns? And my response was to go through Romans chapter 13, talk about the law of the land and how we yield to the law of the land as a matter of conscience. So I would, I would think that it would depend on at that time whether or not the, those who command us to give up our, the protection for our families, if, if, if they are legitimately in position or if, if it's something other than that. And maybe that will be obvious if, if and when it happens, or maybe not. And I, can say, I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it all in, then I'm going to go sit down with my elders, and I'm going to say, give me your judgment on this, and whatever they say, I'm going to do it. That's what I'm going to do. Incidentally, after that service, one of the elders came up and said, you threw us under the bus, you know that. That's okay. That's okay. That's still what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do because you're the elders of the church and I respect you because my Bible says to obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves because they watch for your soul. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, the Bible says, I want you to all speak the same thing. Be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Look around you. Does that even make sense? I mean, how is that even possible? In this room, and I don't know most of you, but in this room right now, you have people of all different economic levels, you have people of different educational levels. You have people with lots of different preferences and backgrounds and nationalities and all of those kinds of things. And, and how in the world can he say, I want you to say the same thing? Well, this. We come together united in the Scripture. And in matters of, of faith, we have unity. The Bible says it. That's it because we're Christians. But what, what about matters of judgment? And the answer is that if you and I conflict on a matter of judgment... We can go to the shepherds, lay it out, and they say, this is our judgment, what is spiritually the best thing for your soul, best thing for your life. And we walk out of there, and you know what? Whatever they say, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Because they're the elders of the church. And aren't you thankful for them? What, what do the elders owe the church? They owe the church to be the right kind of men I suppose you could, you could work for a coal mine or you could work for an automobile factory where you put cars together. And I don't reckon it makes a great deal of difference if those workers really respect their superiors. But that's not the way it is in the church. We need men who are, who are righteous men who are worthy of our respect. And I'm sure that you have them in this congregation. You ought to thank God for them. We... We need men who will lead us and who will defend the church and they know how to do that in the right way. And what do we owe them? We owe them our fellowship to obey their leadership. We owe them the kind of atmosphere where we are not their enemies, we're their friends and we love and appreciate them so that they can serve with joy and not with grief. There's a great deal of design from God, the infinitely creative one, infinitely resourceful one in the way that he made the church. God bless you.